If you are new with us, we are finishing what has been a four-year journey. That's right, four years. Yeah. Uh, we're, this is, okay, this, we are in the last week of actually looking at the text in the book of Matthew. Chris is going to do one more uh, Sunday in the series of the book of Matthew as kind of like a bonus episode next week. Uh, but we uh, started this in January of 2018. That's right. Uh, January of 2018. So we've been in the book of Matthew. And just to give you some context, there's only 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. And we have done 100, I think I'm on week 126. Uh, so that's a lot of Sundays in the book of Matthew. But uh, if you're anything like me, this has actually been a really cool experience. Like we've gotten to walk together as a church family, like verse by verse, in depth into this text and really explore how God wants to speak to us and shape us as we look at the story of Jesus, his life, uh, more recently his death and resurrection, and now as we look at the implications for that, uh, that, that has for us in our own lives. Um, and so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, uh, just five verses, and it's going to start in chapter uh, 20, verse 16. So if you have your Bible, open up to there. Um, really quick, uh, how many of you guys have seen Lord of the Rings? Uh, all right, there's a few, few fangirls out there. Excellent. Uh, I love that. I'm, I'm actually a huge Lord of the Rings fan. But one of the things that uh, I don't love about the final movie is, like, the 25 endings. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like it ends, and then it ends, and then it ends, and then it ends, and you're like, okay, I've been sitting in the theater for two and a half hours already, and then I thought we were done, and we're not done, and I love it. I mean, I love all the extra things. I just think they could have done it in a way that didn't give you, like, the false endings over and over again. One of the things I love about Matthew's gospel is he doesn't give us a bunch of false endings. Like, this is the final five verses. He manages to tie all those threads together in compact five verses. And so there's a lot going on in this text, and I am sad, actually, because I have, like, a ton of notes here, and I know, like, I'm just going to have to cut some stuff because, uh, because we just don't have three and a half hours to unpack multiple endings, uh, thread endings. But uh, yeah, I'm just going to dive right in, and, and we're going to just kind of see what the Spirit has for us this morning. So let me just open in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, uh, we believe that uh, this is your word, uh, that you want to speak to us, uh, that your Spirit is alive and well in us, and, uh, and that you have something for us. And so just help us to have hearts that are open to hear what you want to say to us this morning. Amen. All right, so Jesus has, he's died, he's gone to the cross, he's died, he's been resurrected, uh, and now he has sent these women who encountered him to his disciples and said, like, go and tell them that I'm going to meet them in Galilee. So this is where we find ourselves this morning, uh, and it says in verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, I'm going to stop us here just for a quick moment uh, because this is kind of what we do, but uh, also because there's something here that we need to understand. See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all writing stories about Jesus, but they all choose to kind of end them in slightly different ways and in slightly different places. For Mark, it's like Jesus, uh, you don't even really meet him. It's just the empty tomb. The disciples come, they discover the empty tomb, and that's, that's it. And it's kind of like this big, aha, what does this mean? Uh, John has a series of encounters with Jesus' disciples where Jesus actually like, talks to them and deals with their hearts. Uh, Luke has an encounter of Jesus with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, he actually has Jesus meeting with his disciples in Judea. Uh, but, but Matthew has this one just very interesting uh, encounter that Jesus has with his disciples, and it takes place in Galilee. And there's a reason for this. 
You see, for Matthew, much of the way that he describes Jesus' ministry is fixated and focused on this region of Galilee. And and this is where Jesus' ministry has taken place. And so thematically, what Matthew wants us to understand is as Jesus brings his disciples back to Galilee, as he commissions them to send them out, he wants us to understand that what Jesus is about to say is not something that's like a U-turn from what Jesus is doing. It's a continuation. The ministry that Jesus has been doing, the healing, the bringing people who are on the outskirts of society back in, the casting out demons, the bringing people, uh, making them free from spiritual oppression, uh, confronting the religious leaders for their religiosity, all that stuff is a, this, what Jesus is about to say is a continuation of that work. And so we need to pay attention because if we don't understand that this is a continuation of that work, we're going to miss all the things, all the things that are implied in what Jesus is about to say to us. Uh, Then it says this in verse 17, when they, meaning the disciples, saw him, they worshiped him. So here's Jesus and he comes and he meets with the disciples. He's somewhere in this hill in Galilee. And they have this response that is so different than any response that they've had up until this point. I mean, they've acknowledged that Jesus might be special in some way. Probably many of them thought he was a prophet. He's someone who heard the direct words of God and was supposed to communicate it to people. That he was a great teacher. He had great ideas, godly ideas of how we were supposed to live. That he was even the Messiah, this promised king that God had said would come to the nation of Israel. But there's something different in this response. There's something potent and powerful. They worship him. What does it mean to worship something or someone? Uh, There's an ancient Christian thinker by the name of St. Augustine. And he defined worship as a way that we order our loves. And the thing that we worship is the thing that we love the most. And think about it. I mean, the thing that we love the most really defines every aspect of our lives, doesn't it? I mean, if, if you love it the most, you're going to give your time to it. You're going to give your resources to it. You're going to sacrifice for it. How many of you love a person, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Think about how that actually dictates your time, your resources, your life. And the thing that takes ultimate precedence, the thing that really sets the tone for everything else in our life is the thing that we truly worship. That's why the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love God with everything you have. And we can't miss this. If if we go into the things that Jesus is about to tell his disciples to do without first understanding that it comes from this place of actually worshiping Jesus, we're going to just burn ourselves out. We will not be able to become the people that Jesus is calling us to become if we don't first start from a posture of love but there's, there's not just an arbitrary feeling that the, the disciples have to Jesus. Their, their, their worship comes as a response to what they've just experienced. So they live with Jesus for three years. They've watched as he's brought his loving kingdom to the world. Again, we talked about those things, right? He restores people. He brings people who are pushed to the outskirts of society, who are ostracized into community. He takes people who are dealing with sickness and heals them. He takes people who are dealing with oppression and frees them. 
But then the ultimate act of his love and his power comes when he humbly goes to the cross and dies as an innocent person, not because he deserved it, but because we did. And then, when it looks like all the darkness in the world has once more won, when death has the final say, it doesn't. And Jesus is raised from the dead. And it is this that stirs the disciples' heart to this act of worship. And I just want to invite you today, if, if you're someone who is who's listening and you're not sure about Jesus, you're not sure about this whole church God thing, this, this is the starting point. Like, don't, don't listen to anything else. It's not for you. This part is for you. It's an invitation to encounter a God who loved you so much that he was willing to become a human being, to live the life that you should have lived, to die the death that you deserved, to bring healing and freedom and restoration so that you could be known by him and that you could know him. When you understand this great and incredible love that this God has from you, the only response that will be appropriate is the response of the disciples. He becomes your everything. He defines your life. And you worship him. And my head's getting cut off or something. <laughs> I'm not on my mark, apparently. Uh, but there's this interesting other aspect to this sentence. It doesn't stop with, they worshipped him. It says, but some of them doubted. So just, again, just think about this. These disciples, they've been with Jesus. They've been walking with him for three years. They've watched him heal people. They've watched him raise people from the dead. They've, they're standing be, before, like right in front of him after he, they've watched him die and now see him alive in front of them. Yet some of them doubt. Now that word doubt is a little bit confusing because when we think of doubt, we think of like unbelief. Uh, in the sense of, like, I, there's some facts that I just don't think are true, or I don't know if they're true. But, but the word here that gets translated doubt, uh, it has actually more of a connotation of hesitation. Not like, I don't really believe that this is true, but like, I don't know what to do with this reality. I'm not sure what to do in this situation. And, and this should be really encouraging for us. Because again, think about the disciples. They, they, they've seen so much, and yet they do not know what to do in this moment. Some of them are like, Gosh, I don't know. What, what am I, how am I supposed to react to this Jesus, to this moment? And, and some of us, like, we're, 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 we're not sure what to do with all of this. We're not sure to do with all this Jesus stuff. Like, we're, we're hesitating. We're like, we're like I, don't, I don't know. And yet the beautiful thing about this moment is, like, Jesus doesn't just say, like, okay, get your crap together and then come back. He says, now, I want to invite you to continue to figure out what it looks like to follow me. I'm going to take you in your doubts, in your hesitation, and invite you into my kingdom, into the work that I have for you. And that should be encouraging to us. When we don't have it figured out, know that he does, and that he doesn't just say, you can't be part of this until you got it figured out. He says, come as you are. Come with your doubts. Come with your hesitations. Come and be part of the work that I want to do in and through you. 
So now we get to see what Jesus actually has for us. It says in verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The uh, title I gave to this sermon series is Jesus is the Boss, uh, because this is exactly what he's saying here. When he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he's essentially saying, I'm in charge of everything now. I'm the boss. Everything I'm about to say, you need to to pay attention to, because I'm the one who's calling the shots now. Uh, But this isn't just like something that Jesus is saying. Like In this passage, in this, this line, Jesus is actually drawing together all the threads of human history, all the promises of God, and saying they have been fulfilled in me. Matthew, in particular, draws out some of these themes in his, in his book. So we see constantly Jesus quoting from this passage of Daniel about the Son of Man coming uh, into the throne room of God and receiving power. There's this prophecy that God's going to raise up a human being who's going to restore the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, that has happened in me. All that language about Jesus being the Messiah, the promised king, Jesus is saying, I'm the guy, I'm the king. The covenant that Jesus had with, uh, that God had with David about a coming king that we see right from the beginning of Matthew's gospel when he says Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. What we're seeing here is the fulfillment of all those promises that God had made throughout history. The kingdom of heaven being at hand, this gospel message, this good news message, Jesus is saying it's happened. The kingdom of heaven is here. The king is here. And that is significant. It reminds us that the Bible is not just a bunch of scattered works, but it is a continuous work of God's plan to bring about restoration for humanity, and it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who is now the true human, the true king, the one who is fulfilling all that God has called humans to be, and now enables us to do likewise, because he is in charge. He is the boss. And that has teeth for our lives. If you're sitting in this room or you're watching this or you're sitting in another theater, hear this. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who gets to call the shots in your life now. I have all the authority. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, uh, his disciples were trying to figure out what it actually meant to be a disciple. And Jesus described it this way in chapter 16, verse 24. He said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be part of my kingdom, the first thing you have to understand is I get to call the shots now. Like, you think life is about you about what you want, what you desire, and look where that's got you. It's time to recognize I I need to be the one to be in charge. I don't have time to do this, but this is, like we can go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation of the world, and talk about how Jesus is actually like fulfilling the call of humanity, how he's actually bringing together the threads of what God has said he would do to restore humanity after the rebellion Earlier this week, I was uh, reading through the book of Judges. Uh, It's an interesting book to read through, and the last three chapters are this horrific story. Like, we're talking, like, a brutal rape. A guy, like, cuts this girl who's died from this rape up and sends her body parts to different parts of Israel, and then all the people are like, this is tragic, this is horrible, we're going to come and wipe out these people, and it starts a civil war, and it's this big mess, and at the end, the author says, 
that the problem is that everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. And then the very next book, the first book of Samuel, a king comes, but he doesn't fix the problem. Another king comes, he doesn't fix the problem. There's a king who has shown up, the one who can actually change us and transform us. And the invitation for us is to actually die to ourselves, say, I'm going to stop trying to call the shots in my life, and I'm going to start listening to him. When, uh, when we're trying to unpack this, like I, I talk about my kids a lot because I love them, and they're basically all I do with my time because I'm, you know, they're three and one and a half, and so that's a lot, a handful. Uh, but my daughter, Isla, she's three. She's a little firecracker. Uh, and we're trying to, like, help her understand this, this idea of, like, Jesus having authority in her life. And so uh, what we tell her oftentimes is, like, Jesus is the boss. So, like, she will, the other day, um, you know, she, like, pushed her brother over. Like, he touched her toy, and she got mad, and she just, like, shoved him, like, super hard. And I'm like, go to your room. She's crying and, you know, you know, doing the little girl thing, trying to turn the waterworks, make daddy feel bad. Daddy doesn't feel bad. He's got, like, a heart of iron. So we go in, and we're, and we're talking, and I tell her, I'm like, Jesus, I, I say, Isla, who's, who's your boss? Mommy and daddy. Yes, 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 but who's mommy and daddy's boss? Jesus. Jesus is the boss. That's right, honey, Jesus is the boss. Were you listening to Jesus? No. What do you need to do? I need to listen to Jesus. I need to say sorry to Jesus. Now, that's, that's cute, but, but there's actually this reality here that... This is all of us, right? And don't get me wrong. Like, there are so many times when Shannon and I, we, we have to go and say to Isla, we're sorry because we weren't listening to Jesus. We weren't letting him be the boss of our lives. And so the, the first question I just I want to invite you to ponder with me is, are there areas of your life that Jesus does not yet have authority that you're holding back from him, that you're still trying to do what is right in your own eyes? Who has a phone? Hold it up. Hold up if you have a phone. Uh, wave it around. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, all of us have phones, right? Uh, most of us, all of us. I'm pretty sure most of us. Uh, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to actually like open your Notes app. Open it up if, you're a notes, if you have a Notes app. And, and I want you to think, as we go through this, what are the places that Jesus actually is saying something to my heart in this? So go into your notes app. If you have something right there where you're like, oh gosh, there's some places in my life where Jesus hasn't been the boss, just type it down. Just quick type, put it in. Okay, here's, here's the second implication, though. There's a second implication to this, which is, that if, if Jesus is the boss, that doesn't just mean he's the boss of me. It means he's the boss of everything. And that's what he's saying. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, D.A. Carson, he's a, a scholar who's spent lots of time understanding the Bible, all the, like, the things that you need to know to like, really know this well. He's a, a scholar that we've been tracking with as we've been going through this book. And he has this wonderful line. He says, because of that authority, because of Jesus' authority, his, his followers may go in confidence that their Lord is, the, is in sovereign control of everything in heaven and on earth. 
what Carson is getting at is not only does this have teeth for our lives, but it also should comfort us greatly. And it should help us understand that everything Jesus is about to say is what we need to focus on. Because we can trust that in the chaos and the other things that he is actually in charge. So we just went through or going through or however you want to think about it, like two years of upheaval to the regular rhythms of our lives. You know, there's war in Ukraine right now. There's so much chaos. And it's so easy in that moment to get suckered into trying to control it because we really don't believe, we really don't believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. So we think we have to try and do something to control it. And what happens when we do that? We get distracted from the things that he's about to tell us that we actually need to focus on. Making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded us. But when we spend some time actually investing in this reality that Jesus has authority over everything, when we trust that's true, when life looks like it's out of control, we know that it's not. Because we know that Jesus is in control because he's told us he has it under control. And we know that's true because in the moment of ultimate like space where it looked like he was out of control, when he goes to the cross, when it looks like death and destruction is going to kill God, what does he do? He rises from the dead. So in the chaos of COVID, in the chaos of war, and any of these things, we can focus in and trust that he's got these things under control and do the things that he has called us to do and stay focused on the things that he has called us to focus on. So let's unpack those things. He goes on to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, so because of this, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. Here's your marching orders. This is your job description as my follower. Go. Go. The first thing he says is go. Now, there is this sense that uh, there's a command kind of sense to this, but, but actually, this is not an imperative. Imperative is like a command word. It's an indicative. And that's really important because we can think about this as this call to like go out there and do this thing somewhere else. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, well, you are going. This is what I want you to do. This is important. Because it means that every place that we go to, we are called to make disciples. When you go to school, make disciples. When you go to work, make disciples. When you go for a walk around your neighborhood, make disciples. When you go to the grocery store, make disciples. we got to understand that what Jesus is saying is everything you do now is about making disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The second thing, of course, is this call to to make disciples. So let me just ask you, what is a disciple? Do you know? Think in your head. Come up with a a picture, an image. As a a leadership team, we've been trying to to just think of a way to capture this image of a disciple and and based on a lot of what Jesus has said, the pictures that we have, the definition that we've come up with is that a disciple is someone who is learning to submit all of their life to the lordship of Christ and teaching others to do the same. It's simple, and yet it's all-encompassing. Someone who is learning to submit all of their life to the lordship of Jesus, to the lordship of Christ, and teaching others to do the same. 
Now, there's this reality that when we look at disciple as sort of a, a, a doing type of thing, like this is, we're going to talk about all the things we're supposed to do, it can be really easy for us to think that this is just a, a list of to-dos. Like, now i got to add a few more things to my religious checklist. You know, go to church on Sundays, make disciples, you know, like... Uh, but that's, that's, that's problematic because this isn't actually what Jesus is talking about. Because remember, we've got to go back to what happened at the beginning. The disciples were worshiping him. When Jesus is saying, make the disciples, uh, go and make disciples, this is an intrinsically relational reality. Jesus' discipleship was people walking with him, looking at the way he lived his life and doing likewise. And what Jesus is inviting his disciples to, to do is to be in relationship with him. It's not this abstract list of rules out there. He's saying, I want you to continually know me, to be with me, to continue to do the things that I do. And so the, another definition that I've heard to help us understand a little bit of how this gets worked out uh, is a disciple is one who is with Jesus, who is becoming like Jesus, and who does what Jesus did. It's not just someone who has an abstract list of rules that they follow. It's someone who is following Jesus relationally. They know him. They're with him. They're abiding in him. They're spending time knowing his heart for people, listening to the things he wants to say through his word, through his spirit in us, through his church. And we're becoming more like him. Sometimes in the church world, we kind of have this idea that the, the ends kind of justify the means. So we have this picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. We want our, our country to be a particular way. And so we're just going to fight and fight and fight to get it that way. But when we're actually a disciple, it means that not only the ends matter, but the way that we get there matters. And the way that we get there has to be the same way as Jesus because we're in relationship with him. We're following after him. You know, it's so interesting that that Jesus doesn't go and try and like raise up a thousand legions of people to go and destroy the tyrannical Roman Empire, right? What does he do? He sacrifices himself. He goes to the cross. He loves deeply. And what's so interesting is that same reality is the reality that the early church hand, like, uh, continues to live out. How does the Roman Empire become uh, Christian? Well, let me tell you a few things. Christians go and they get eaten by lions in the circus because they love Jesus so much. They get burnt as torches because they love Jesus so much. They suffer at the hands of people as a way of saying, man, we care more about God. And then look at the way that they treat others. Back in, in, in the ancient uh, Roman Empire and pagan society, if you had someone in your family that was sick with some kind of contagious disease, you're like, Tough, you're on your own. I'm going to put you out in the street because I don't want to get what you have. What did the Christians do? They started hospitals. Where did hospitals come from? Christians. Saying, hey, there's all these sick people that are just being abandoned. That's not what Jesus would do. We're going to bring them in. We're going to care for them. It might cost us. We might get sick. How about orphans? Yeah, this is, this is, this is how they, they got rid of kids that they didn't want. Baby would come and say, yeah, I don't have enough food for you, so you can go die in the sewer somewhere. What do the Christians do? They said, well, we don't have a lot of food, but we're going to take this child and raise them as our own because this is what we've experienced in Jesus, and it is these acts of beautiful justice, these acts of mercy, these acts of grace that through time continue 
to change and transform the hearts of the people of the Roman Empire to a point where 300 years after Jesus, 30 million people, half of the Roman Empire are Christian, and the governing authorities are just like, if you can't beat them, join them. I guess we're all going to be Christians now. Now, there's a ton of problems that came from that. Uh, that, that is not necessarily a great thing, but here's the reality is, this is the methods of Jesus. If we're disciples of Jesus and we want to bring about justice, then we do it in Jesus' way. So Len, again, let me ask you, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? I think sometimes we mistake this term disciple. We think about disciple a lot of times as someone who has like a lot of knowledge about Jesus. I've heard a lot of people use this term like mature Christian. What they mean by that is someone who's been in the church for a really long time and they know a lot of things. But that's not a Jesus definition of a disciple. A disciple isn't someone who knows a lot of things. It's a person who looks a lot like Jesus. And there's a lot of people who know a lot of things about Jesus and don't look anything like him. They're not humble. They're not, self, they're not giving of themselves. They're not sacrificial. There's a lot of ways that people can be connected with the church that isn't discipleship. We have people who are attenders. Maybe that's some of us here in the room. You know, you kind of like the habit of going to a place. You've grown up with it, and you're like, yeah, hey, I'm going to show up. This is just what I do. We have people who are consumers. You're here because you think there's something that you want. Maybe it's the music. Maybe it's the preaching. Maybe it's the kids' ministry. Like, yeah, it has something for me. I like it. So I'm going to come until I don't. That's not a disciple. There are those who are fans. You know, I like good family values. I want to be in a place that espouses some of the things I believe. That Jesus guy, he had a few good things to say. I think he supports my politics. That's not a disciple. A disciple is one who is learning to submit every area of life to the lordship of Jesus and teaching others to do the same. So as we go through this, uh, this definition of disciple, as we unpack this, again, if you have your phones with you, I just want to invite you to take a moment and just ask yourself, is there anything here that the Spirit's just saying, oh gosh, like this is an area of your life that doesn't look like a disciple? And just write it down. And then the, the second thing I want to invite you to do is after this is done, as you take time to process it, ask yourself, is there someone who I should tell about this? Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's a friend. You know, what good is it for us to hear this word if it's not actually going to lead to obedience? You might come out of here knowing some interesting things. But if it doesn't actually bring about change and transformation, we haven't actually been a disciple of Jesus. The third thing that Jesus says is that we are to make disciples, and then he says that we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism uh, is this beautiful thing. I'm, I'm super excited. We're going to do a baptism uh, in, on Easter Sunday, which is a, such a great, a great um, day to just welcome people uh, into the family of God or recognize that they've been welcomed into the family of God. Uh, and I think uh, there's a couple of errors that, that churches have made in how they think about baptism. One is that they think about baptism as sort of just this like 
um, like family ritual, like where you're kind of saying as parents, like we're going to commit to raising this people in this community. Um, and the other error is when we kind of elevate baptism to this thing where it's like you have to be kind of like a, a certain level of Christian before you're ready to baptize. Like baptism is when you really recognize that you've kind of arrived in your Christian journey. And that's neither of those are true. One kind of thinks too little of it and one thinks too much of it. Uh, and the reality is that if we look at this picture of baptism, baptism is, is like a starting point. It's a recognition. It's like, uh, think about, um, like, we, we call graduation sometimes commencement because we recognize, like, that four years of school or whatever you did that you're graduating from, like, that's really just, like, the precursor to life. And now you're baptized, and you're saying, like, this is when it actually begins. Real life happens. And, and this is kind of... Uh, what baptism is, it's a starting point, it's a recognition of a change, and, and it's significant to us, because not only is it like a symbol, but, but it has some really, really important meaning for us. So think, think, just think about how baptism works. When someone goes under the water, that's a representation of their death to self. That's a, that's a, a declaration saying, I don't get to call the shots anymore. Jesus is now the boss. I'm putting myself to death and saying, I come up, and now I am defined by him. I am under his authority. And Jesus doesn't just say, do this symbol, but he says, do this symbol in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not the names, the name. We are now identified by the person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, the triune God. And that has implications for us. That has implications for who we are and how we live out our discipleship. Just let's think about some of these. We, we do this all the time, so this is like probably a refresher for some of you. But if, if you're new to this idea, let, let's just unpack this. So God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, if God is our Father, what does that mean for us? We're his sons and daughters. If you have the same Father, you're sons and daughters. What does that make you? It makes you family. That's why the, the Bible often uses this picture of family to describe the church. That's what we're supposed to be. But so often we don't do that, right? We don't actually live out our discipleship as family. We haven't learned to submit areas of our life to Jesus. And so we compartmentalize our Christian life. And so it's like, yeah, I am happy to come for an hour and a half. When Andrew's preaching, it's two hours here on a Sunday morning and hang out with other people, eat my scones, drink my coffee, sit in my comfy chair, maybe get a little nap in. But the rest of my time, that's me. That's about me. And all those people, I'm happy to like put on the smile and, and come and show up. But you know what? Uh, they might be messy. I don't know if I want them in my life. Or I'm a mess, and I don't know if I want them to see that. But that's, that's not how family lives. Right? Like we show up for each other. A good family spends time together. They eat together. They care for each other. This is the picture, Chris will unpack this a little bit more next week, but this is the picture of what the church actually starts to look like when we see how they work out this implication. The second thing that we see, or the second name that we're, we're second part of God that we're baptized into is, uh, is the Son. Uh, and Jesus has continually said that he is the king. So what are the implications of that? If the Son is the king, what does it make us? It makes us his servants makes us his servants. So there's a couple of things that we need to recognize about. If he's the king, we need to listen to him. We need to serve him, but we need to also serve like him. 
we represent him to the world. And so just as Jesus said, I came uh, not to serve, not to be served, and give my life as a ransom for many, our job is to continue to serve others as Jesus has served us, to lay down our life sacrificially for others as Jesus has done for us, to continue to uh, live out lives of worship and declaration to Jesus. And then the final aspect of God that we are called to uh, identify in or be identified in now is, is the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent to empower the first church and us to bear witness to the world, to, to share this good news message of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so that means that we are sent ones, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do the same to tell people about who Jesus is. We are to go and make disciples. This is who we are. This is how we live. And as a church, we have continually said that this is not the space where that happens. We might learn some cool things about Jesus. We might have small moments where we can be in community together, but it is not this picture of what discipleship looks like. And so we need to continually press ourselves to do this more. And this is why we have community groups. Community groups aren't a midweek Bible study. It's not just go there, learn some stuff, go about your week. They're families learning to serve each other, committed to mission together. Why? Because we really believe that Jesus has all authority and that actually has to have teeth in our life and change the way we live. And the final thing that Jesus says is that we're not only to make disciples and not only to baptize them, but we're to teach them to obey everything that he has commanded us. I think sometimes when we think about teaching, we think about teaching as this abstract idea of gaining more information. And, and I would kind of differentiate what Jesus is talking about with that idea because, you see, when, when, when we think about that, that's kind of like the equivalent of a... Um, like a history degree. I don't know if there's any history majors, but like when I think about a history degree, I imagine that you're just kind of learning a lot of facts about stuff that happened. What Jesus is talking about is more like a medical degree. It's like, yes, you're going to learn some science facts, but then you also have to like do dissections. You also have to cut up cadavers. You have to learn how to do surgeries. It's hands-on. You're going to go, you're going to learn some stuff, you're going to have some practical labs, and then you get into residency where you're being supervised and you're being taught how to do this stuff uh, with another person. And then maybe after hours and hours and hours of actually having to do this in supervision, you get to, you get to go and do it yourself. Now, I'm not saying that we need to take hours and hours and hours of supervision. My point is, is that when we talk about what Jesus is saying here, teaching, we cannot just think about this as communicating abstract facts about God. This is an idea that we're called to train people to live in obedience to Jesus. And the problem is, is that when we continually fixate on teaching as just transmission of facts, what it can do is it can actually produce a dead orthodoxy in us. We can have people who know all the right facts about God, but whose lives are not actually submitted in obedience to him at all. Uh, in grade 12, uh, I went to a Christian school here in the city and uh, I had a lot of kids in my grade who knew a lot of stuff about Jesus. And they looked absolutely nothing. They had no difference in the way that they lived to any person that would have been not a Christian. They knew all the right things. They didn't do any of them. That is not someone who's been taught to obey everything Jesus has commanded them. 
Discipleship is a process of teaching, training. And so we can't just transmit facts. It's, it's more like how you teach your kids to do something if you have kids. Like when I want to teach Isla how to do something, I don't just say, like, hey, Isla, like, go make bread. Just, you know, figure out a recipe garden. She can't read, you know. So I, I spend time inviting her into this process. We, uh, we do it together. I show her the recipe. I help her pour in the flour and the sugar and this, you know, the stuff that needs to go in it. I, I help her understand how to turn on the oven. We do it time and time and time again. This is what we're called to do. You know, when we're trying to help someone understand what it looks like to be a discipleship in their marriage, it's like I'm coming in and see how I actually like fight it out with my wife, how I learn to repent to her when I've done something wrong, or how we learn to submit to one another in love. That's a picture of what this teaching is, and it requires us to open up our lives for people to actually walk with them, not just tell them stuff about Jesus, but show them stuff about Jesus, to debrief with them, to encourage them to try it, to have them come back and tell us, hey, how did that go? Oh, I this went really well. This was really hard. Okay, here's something else you can try. Let me do it with you. Let me show you how to do it. Now you try it. And so I want to just ask us, as we kind of finish off here, are you practicing discipleship in such a way that you're really teaching others? Think about even some simple first steps in this process of learning how to do this yourself. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you listened to a sermon and it actually changed the way you lived that week? Like you actually heard something, the Spirit said something to you and said, hey, here's an area of your life that you need to submit to Jesus. Here's a change that you need to make. And you said, yeah, I'm going to make that change. I'm going to write down. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to figure it out. Or maybe just thinking about our own personal time with Jesus. When was the last time that you read your Bible and you just came across something? You said, I'm not going to move on until I actually have learned how to obey Jesus in this area of my life. You're reading through the book of Matthew and you come across, uh, you know, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. You're like, man, there's a lot of people in my life that I say I hate or I don't like. I don't love them at all. Jesus called me to love them. I'm just going to, I'm going to figure out how I do that. And I'm not going to move on until I've learned how to obey Jesus in this area of my life. You know, like maybe I don't know how, so I'm going to go talk to someone who's like, seems like they're really good at being gracious with other people, even people who are jerks to them. And I'm going to learn this thing because we're actually called to be obedient to Jesus. And why does this all matter? Because this is what we're called to be. This is who we were created to be. People who live under the lordship of God, who bring his kingdom to the world. Now, if you're hearing this, and it's like hitting you as heavy, you're like, man, I don't, I don't know how I'm ever going to do that. Then Jesus' next words are for you. And as I finish off, I'm going to invite the band to come up as we, we close here together. The final thing that Jesus says, the very last sentence in the book of Matthew before he goes is this. 
He says, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. See, even in this task that Jesus has given us, he recognizes we can't do it on our own. We still need him. And he promises that he's not just leaving us to our own devices, that he's going to be right here with us, that his spirit will come and dwell with us, will prompt us, will teach us, will make us more like him. And this final thing should both be, this final uh, statement should be both be a, a rebuke and an encouragement. There are times when we're going to go through life and we're going to think we're killing it. Jesus is really lucky to have me on his team. And yet this reminds us that, no, we needed him, not the other way around. And at the same time, when we get to a point where we're so discouraged because we've been trying and trying and trying, we're trying to disciple our kids and it looks like they're rejecting Jesus. We're trying to share Jesus with friends, and we're trying to disciple them, and it looks like they have no interest. We are reminded that it is not our work that changes hearts and transforms, but it is his. And we can rest in that. So as we finish off here, I want to invite us to the communion table. There's no table, but, you know, to the communion shot glass. There's a reason that we do this every week. Uh, On the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he told his disciples to, to drink this cup, that every time that we did this, that we would proclaim his death until he came. That was a way of reminding us every day of what Jesus has done for us, of our need for him. But it was also a way of reminding us of his enduring presence by his spirit in us, his people. And so I want to just continue to invite us to the, to the, uh, to the communion table. Uh, this piece of bread, this little wafer, it reminds us of Jesus' body broken for us. As we seek to be a people who go make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us, we know that our bodies might be broken in the process, that it might be costly, that our blood might be shed. But Jesus' words at the end remind us that it is his broken body that saves and his blood that transforms and that we can rest in that reality. So let's eat this cracker in remembrance of him. And in the same way, let's drink this cup together in remembrance of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us so that we could be his called people sent out to make disciples who make disciples. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we recognize that um, this is a tall order, that your job description of, of, of our lives is a lot, and it's one that we will constantly uh, fail at, uh, one that we will 
constantly need to recalibrate our lives to, to recognize that there's areas that we still haven't submitted, that we still haven't put under your authority. And yet, Father, we also recognize how gracious you are with us, that you continue to care for us and love us and call us your own. Help us to rest in that reality and to continue to move from a place of worship for who you are and what you've done for us as we move into the things that you have called us to do. I pray this in your name.